mentioned this earlier, but this is just a random thought and a funny one. So this week as I was preparing, uh, I was trying to get hymns for Dana, and I'd already written down the hymns that you see before you, and I asked her, I said, hey, which ones were the first ones that we started Advent with last year? And would y'all believe that it was the exact same two hymns that y'all have before you right now? It's the same ones we sang last year, we're singing this year. So I am nothing if not a creature of habit, apparently. Um, I don't know why that, I just, it was funny. So anyway, uh, turn with me. I invite you to turn with me once again uh, to the book of 1 John, uh, where we have made it finally to this last chapter of this little epistle, uh, chapter 5. Now, believe it or not, Lord willing, my plan is to consider this chapter in, in just two weeks. Um, this week we're going to consider verses 1 through 13, and then next week we'll look at verses 14 through 21. And so, uh, as they say, we have made it to the home stretch. Uh, and it's my prayer that, that even though we're just going to take it in two weeks, that we won't go out with a whimper, but that we'll go out finishing strong. So uh, with that in mind, let's read together 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 13. Uh, this is God's holy and errant and infallible word. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us, eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has the Father. Whoever has the Son has life. And whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it stands forever. Let's pray together. Father, as we uh, have said, uh, this is your word, uh, the only rule of faith and practice. And so we ask that, that you would, through the work of your Spirit, use it to draw us ever closer to your side uh, and to teach us how to walk as your covenant people. Uh, and we ask it in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, your Son. Amen. Well, I'm pretty sure that at some point uh, in one of my preaching classes, we were taught uh, never to use movies as illustrations for our opening introductions. And I'm sure, uh, I know that that is sound advice, but it's sound advice that I'm going to ignore this morning because I know, I'm confident, that many of you are familiar with the classic, dare I say, the masterpiece known as the Princess Bride. Now, uh, we don't have to go through all of the movie, 
Uh, well, I don't have to tell you the whole thing. I just mentioned it to you to tell you this one thing. There's one of my favorite lines in that movie is delivered by the swordsman, Inigo Montoya, to one of the primary antagonists in the movie, the Sicilian criminal named Vizzini. Now, to set the stage for you throughout the movie, uh, whenever he becomes frustrated, whenever things don't work out like he anticipated, Vizzini will say, he'll shout out, inconceivable. You got me? Inconceivable? Now, this occurs enough times that finally, Inigo Montoya, he looks at him and he says, you keep saying this word. I don't think it means what you think it means. <laughs> now, whether he was actually using the word correctly or not, it, we can debate. But it's a great line. And my boys will tell you it is a line that I make use of often to them. I say to them often, this word that you keep saying, I don't think it means what you think it means. And it's a line that applies well to the word that is at the heart of our passage today. Uh, the word faith. You know, both inside and outside of the church, uh, faith is a word that gets thrown around pretty loosely. You know, sometimes, whether it's folks outside of the church or even us, uh, we apply faith to, to certain products or certain sports teams. You know, we have faith that this thing will work, or we have faith that Alabama will somehow pull it out, which they always do. So anyway, um, other times, you know, we apply faith to our circumstances, to our futures. Uh, we have faith that somehow all of these things will, will work out, that, that they'll all be fine in the end. And then, of course, still other times we speak of faith in religious terms. You know, some have faith in science, which is, just a side note, a religious claim as much as any that we make as Christians. Some have faith in karma, some have faith in Allah, and of course we recognize that, that faith is a central aspect to what we believe as Christians. It is a critical element to what we all profess, right? The problem is even within the church and even within all of these examples, there's a whole wide range of meaning for that word faith. In fact, we throw it around so kind of willy-nilly in so many different circumstances that somebody on the outside looking in might say to us, this word you keep saying, I do not think it means what you think it means. And that's particularly true if they were to compare our use of the word faith to the biblical use of the word faith. Friends, the, the simple fact is that so often what we mean when we say we have faith, even within the church, is a far cry from what scripture means by that word faith. As with so many good biblical words, uh, we've let this one lose some of its punch. And again, given how central faith truly is to, to what we profess, that leaves us in sort of a precarious situation, okay? And so what we need is we need to know what faith is for real. What, what is Christian faith? Well, thankfully here, John, he guides us along that path. Uh, he, he gives us four aspects, four qualities that mark and make Christian faith particularly Christian. 
He's going to point out the object of Christian faith. He's going to point out the author of Christian faith, the results of Christian faith, and the basis of Christian faith. The object, the author, the results, and the basis. Now again, the question that I want us to all ask ourselves as we move through this is what is our conception of faith? How are we using that word? Is it faith for real? Well, that's the question before us, so let's look at it together. The first thing I want you to notice in this passage is the object of Christian faith. And you see it there in verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. You see it in verse 5. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And you see it there in verse 12. Whoever has the Son has life. To put it shortly and succinctly, it is Jesus who is the object of our faith. Now look, on the one hand, I recognize that 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 is so obvious, it should be so obvious to all of us in the church that it almost doesn't need to be said. You know, if I had stood up here and just polled all of you, if I had said what or who is the object of Christian faith, I think the great majority of us would have said, Christ. Jesus is the object of our faith. Even if you just gave me the Sunday school answer, you would have got it right. You know, what do you answer in Sunday school when you don't know the answer? Jesus, our God, and 90% of the time you're going to get the answer right. So objectively, uh, intellectually, it seems that we know that Jesus is the object of our faith. But on the other hand, If you listen to Christians actually talk about faith, what you'll find is that the object doesn't seem to be all that clear. Sometimes what people mean when they say they have faith is that they they say, I have faith, and that means they go to church. Or that means they give their tithes. Or that means that they are relatively, at least compared to the world, good people. Now look, we're going to find in just a minute... That, that true faith does result in these things. It, it results in good action. In fact, some of these things that I just mentioned are actual evidences of our faith. But they are not the object of our faith. In other words, my faith does not rest in my behavior. No matter how good it may be, uh, it, it doesn't rest in my behavior even after I become a Christian. Now, my faith always is in Christ alone. Other times when we speak of faith, we speak of it in terms of an experience or of an emotion that wells up in us. We say, I have faith because I, maybe I walked an aisle or I had a, a tingly sort of mystical sensation in my heart. Now, again, there may be validity to those experiences. But if they are the object, if that's what we're looking to with our faith, then we've got it wrong. We've missed it. Consider the the Apostle Paul, right? Nobody, very few people have ever had a conversion experience as mystical, as amazing as his. On the road to Damascus, blinded by this great light, speaks to Jesus himself and has scales over his eyes. And yet, as he preaches the good news throughout Scripture... 
What is it that he holds up to people? Not his experience. Sure, he, he, he retells it, at least in Acts 22, so it was part of what he would say. But what was it that he held up? It was Jesus. Always he came, not preaching in, in uh, bold and in um, the, the ways of the world, but he came preaching the foolishness of Christ. Finally, and this one may be the most subtle use of faith that, that we have, we speak of faith itself as the object. In, in other words, we'll say, you just have to believe, or you just have to have faith. But that faith then becomes the end of the sentence. Instead of being the instrument of salvation, the means by which we reach out and we grasp what is the proper object, Jesus, faith by itself becomes salvation. And so that leads to people saying things like, oh, if I could just build up just a little bit more faith, then, then I would be good. If I could just build up just a little bit more faith, then I could do X, whatever X may be. But friends, the issue is not the size of our faith. Not per se. Rather, the issue is the object of our faith. If Christ is the object, then Scripture says even a mustard seed's worth of faith will move mountains. The object is the central issue, and it is Jesus who is the object. And notice here, it is not just any Jesus, but it is the biblical Jesus. It is he who has come and we read of in the pages of scriptures. The one who we said last week was born of a virgin, who had a true bodily resurrection, who sits at God's right hand now. This, he, is the object of our faith. Now, friends, we, we have to move on from this point, but it's such an important one because we so easily and so often, maybe unintentionally, get this wrong. Our default setting as sinners, as those who have been born under our first father, Adam, our default setting is to try to save ourselves. We want to save ourselves. And notice in all of those scenarios that I mentioned above, ultimately, who is it that is the object of our faith? Really, it's us, isn't it? It's my good works that I look to. It's my subjective experience that I look to. It's my faith that I'm looking and clinging to to save me. Friends, none of those things can save us. Only Jesus can save us. He is the object of our faith. Now, secondly, all of that leads us to the author of Christian faith. And here again, the, the danger lies uh, within ourselves. It lies in our own belief that, that somehow, some way, uh, we have to contribute to our own salvation. You know, in, in every other area of American life, we have to work. We, we have to get out of whatever we have. We have to get out what we put in, right? And so we carry that belief over to our Christian faith, and it's a belief that our sinful hearts are all too eager to buy into. 
You know, faith becomes something that, that we have done. Again, something that, that we need to dig just a little bit deeper to, to work up in our lives. We become the author of our faith. But friends, notice here, who is the author of Christian faith? Look at verse 4. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. It is God who has overcome the world. The one who overcomes is the one who has been born of God. Now you'll say to me, okay, well what does that mean? Well turn with me to John chapter 3. Remember in John chapter 3, Nicodemus, the, the great religious leader of his time, Jewish religious leader, he comes to Jesus, he asks a very similar question, Jesus responds, you have to be born again, and he says, well, how in the world can that happen? What in the world does that mean? I want you to listen to what Jesus says. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who has been born of the Spirit. Now notice, who's at work in this new birth? It's not Nicodemus. He doesn't say, Nicodemus, go and rebirth yourself, which, yes, is a horrifying sentence. (laughs) He doesn't say that. No, it's God. It's the Spirit that accomplishes the new birth. This this is said more plainly. Just turn over a couple pages to chapter 1. Chapter 1 and in verse 12. He says, but to all who did receive him, that is Jesus, who believed in his name, He gave the right to become children of God. And here it is. Who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now recognize, even in that verse, there is a call to believe. There is a call to have faith. But without the new birth, Without regeneration, without God's work in our hearts, the work of the Spirit, that belief and that faith is impossible. A couple more examples. Turn, if you you can, to Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel chapter 36. You remember there, Ezekiel, God tells Ezekiel, he prophesies that that he's going to give the people a new heart. So verse 22, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord our God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And then down in verse 24, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. And I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you 
and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall, you shall dwell in the land I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. Now again, who's at work here? Who's doing this? It's God doing this. Now we may say, okay, well certainly, surely there's some way I can contribute to this. One more chapter over, chapter 37, you remember the, the vision that Ezekiel receives, the, the valley of the dry bones. And he looks out over this great valley, and there's just dead, dry bones everywhere. And God says, can these bones live? And Ezekiel says, well, God, only you know. And God, he breathes his breath on those bones. And what happens? They come to life. They, the, the spirit moves in them. And they become, once again, living beings, living people. Who did it? Not the dry bones. God did it. One last, one last example. Ephesians, back in the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 2, uh, the one that, that we know so well, beginning in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which he loved us. Now listen to the description of who we were at this point. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, dead, what can a dead man do for himself? He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And then skip over to, to verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, but it is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now look, that's a, a lot to consider. It's a lot to, to think about. But the reason why I, I went to all of that trouble to get it in front of you is because what it should do is give us great comfort. The, the reality that, that God is the author, the Holy Spirit is the author of our faith. It, it should give us great hope. Because if I, me personally, if I am the author of my faith, then one of two things is going to happen. One, I'm either going to become so unbearably arrogant and I'm going to boast so much that, that you're not going to be able to stand me, right? Because I'm going to be able to say, I did this. Look at the faith that I produce. And that's why Paul says, so that no man may boast, right? We didn't do this. God did this. The second issue is we're either going to be arrogant or we're going to fall into despair, because, friends, if we are honest with ourselves at all, at all, we recognize that if faith is our doing, then we're in trouble. I'm, I'm going to mess it up. I, I'm going to lose it if it's up to me to keep it. But again, here's the good news. I'm not the author. God is the author. And he who began the good work in you, he will bring it to completion. And so if I boast, I boast in him. And if I grow weak and weary, I look not to myself, but I look to him, knowing that, that he won't let me go, knowing that he won't allow his children to lose completely the faith that he has given them. Because Christ, again, who is the object of our faith, he will not be moved. It is because our, our faith rests in Jesus that we have this truth. He is the one who will not lose that faith. 
He is the one who will not let it go. It is rooted and established in the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so the triune God, he is the author of our faith. We've seen the object, we've seen the author. Thirdly, I want you to notice the results of Christian faith. And you see it in verses 2 and 3, and then also in verses 11 and 12. So first, verses 2 and 3. Notice that, that Christian faith, it results in love for God, and it results in uh, obedience to his commandments. Love of God and obedience. Now, we've touched on this a whole host of times throughout First John, so I'm going to try not to overdo it here, but just notice three sort of big picture things about obedience here. Notice first that obedience is not a prerequisite to new birth. In other words, what, what John is saying here is not you have to be obedient, then God will give you faith. No, it is completely the other way around, right? Not because of our obedience do we have faith, but God gives it to us freely by his grace. The Old Testament it makes this abundantly clear with regards to a whole host of people, but particularly to the nation of Israel. Why is it in Deuteronomy 7 that God chose Israel? Not because they were more numerous than other nations. Not because they were more faithful, more obedient. Not because of anything in them. He chose them simply out of his love. And then in Exodus 20, you know, the preamble to the, the, uh, the Ten Commandments, what does he say? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, who brought you out of the hand of slavery. Now, go do this. He didn't say, go do this, and then I will redeem you. He had redeemed them, and then he gives them the commandments. Obedience is not the prerequisite. It, God's not saving us because we have been particularly faithful. No, he, he saves us because he is faithful to do so. Secondly, however, notice that obedience is necessary. If we have real faith, obedience is necessary. Real faith results in real obedience. There's no other way to cut it. We have been saved to holiness. We have been saved to new resurrection life. The Spirit of God is alive in us. Jesus has shed his blood to redeem us. Obedience is now possible. And to some degree or another, it is required. It's required for those who are in Christ. Now look, the, the reality is, is we do continue to wrestle with sin. And so this is not perfect obedience that is required. And thank God for, for 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. But friends, some level of fruit in our lives is necessary. Jesus says they will know who you are. You will know who you are by the fruit that is in your life. In the Sermon on the Mount, what he's making clear is that the law, the Ten Commandments, they're not abrogated. But the full extent of the Ten Commandments is the standard for his kingdom. The, the kingdom of God will be ruled by the full extent of the law. We are to keep his commandments. Now again, I, I can feel all of you, because I feel it in my own heart, wanting to just go, Ugh, mm. uh, you know, th that idea of rules 
It is it's not something that our heart likes. We, we don't like to follow the rules. Certainly don't like someone to impose rules on us. But, but here's the good news of all of this. Notice the third thing about obedience here. It's not burdensome. That's a great verse. It's short and it's sweet, but it's a great one. God's commands, his law, is not a burden to us. Now, friends, how can that be when our heart screams, all of this is just keeping me down? Well, it's because the new birth that we have experienced at God's hands and because of of who our faith rests in, they free us to live as he made us to live. Yes, there was a time where the law was a burden. There was a time where it resulted only in our frustration, only in our death. A time where it was a schoolmaster that showed us our sin and drove us to Jesus because we could not keep it. But now that we have Christ, now that we've seen him come in a manger, now that we've seen the extent to which God would go to save us, Jesus bloodied, Jesus beaten to redeem us, now that we have received the new birth, the instructions of our Heavenly Father are just that. They are good, kind instructions of a good Father. We recognize with thankful hearts, hearts overflowing with love for Him and what He has done for us, that His law is the best way for us to live. In fact, it was how we were created to live. Think about it. Who lived the most pleasing earthly life to God? Who walked closest to him all the days of his life? It was Jesus, right? And what did he do? He kept the law perfectly. Now certainly he did that on our behalf. He did it to fulfill the covenant. But he also did it because when God gave the covenant to begin with, he knew for Adam and Eve and he knew for us that the best way for us to live was the way that he called us to live. As you see, the the lie from the beginning, the lie that Satan has been preaching from the start is that God's law is burdensome. That it is a yoke that we have to cast off if we want to live our best life. And that's the, the phrase that we hear so often now. Go and live your best life. And so often living your best life is a far cry from living the way that God calls us to live in Scripture. We hear that it, Jesus is here just to, to ruin our fun. Because sin, sin is really where the fun is. Friends, that's not true. If you or I want to live our best life, we will do it through thankful loving obedience to the one who has saved us. Obedience, it's not a burden. It's not just a list of rules that God has given us just to crush us and keep us down. No, in the fulfilling of the law is real joy. It is real freedom. It is true, real, full life. Now, That leads us to the the second result of faith, and it is there in verses 11 and 12, eternal life. Now, I I know, because I I see it in my own heart and I feel it in my own heart, the fact is, is that the obedience that God calls us to is not something that we are able to do in this life. And so it's easy for us to get frustrated. 
particularly when we think about sanctification, how, how little progress we've made along the way, it's easy to get frustrated. And so, the, the second result of faith is not merely that we notice that we're called to obedience, but it's that we also know and recognize that we have eternal life. That there is a point coming where perfect obedience will be the reality in all of our lives. When Jesus comes, or when we go to be with him, we no longer will struggle with sin. Sinless perfection will be all of our testimonies. Eternal life with him, perfect holiness with our Savior, that will be the reality that we experience. And so faith, it calls us to obedience. It works obedience in our lives as we look to Jesus, as the Spirit works in our hearts, but it also points us ahead to a time that's coming, a time of great deliverance, a time where we no longer will struggle with sin the way that we do here. So, the object is Christ. The author is God. The results are obedience and eternal life through the Holy Spirit. And then fourthly and finally and quickly, the basis of Christian faith. In other words, uh, in a world where everything is relative, where truth is questioned at every turn, how can I know that this sort of faith, the sort of faith that John holds up to us here, the sort of faith that I'm preaching to you now, how can we know that it is faith for real? Well, the answer is there in verse 9. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that has been born concerning his Son. It's what we have here before us. Um, what, what we find in the Word is not just merely my opinion. Uh, for John's original readers, it was not just the opinion of some teachers who had come in to give them new and false doctrine. John says, what I'm, what I'm preaching to you, what I'm teaching you here is the testimony of the triune God. And don't miss the way that the triune God is on display here in this passage. It's the, it's the triune God who testifies that Jesus came by the water and the blood. Now, this is a tricky and much debated verse. And notice I have left it till the very end so that I can say to you we don't have time to consider all of its nuances. But I can tell you that the majority position on this particular view, the majority view, is that what John is referring to here are the two bookends of Christ's public ministry. At the very beginning, he was baptized in the water, right? And what happened when he was baptized? The Holy Spirit descended upon him, and the Father said, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Follow him, right? What was the, the last book in? What, what happened at the end of Jesus' life? He went to the cross, where, where by blood he redeemed his people, where through his blood God declared us vindicated. He declared the love of his people by pouring out his wrath against sin on his son. Friends, as we have discussed with the kids during the children's sermon, this is the truth that the Father has made clear throughout Scripture. Not just here in John, not just in the Gospels, not just in the New Testament, but from Genesis 3.15 till the end, 
This is the testimony that Jesus is the Son of God and that whoever believes in the name of the Son of God, they have eternal life. Whoever has the Son has life. And whoever does not have the Son, he does not have life. And again, how do we receive the Son? We receive him through the instrument of faith. Faith that reaches out and it grasps Jesus. Not our works, not something else, not, not our own thoughts or ideas, but it reaches out and it grasps Jesus. That's the testimony of the triune God, and that's how we know that this, what's before us, is faith, and it's faith for real. Friends, I'll ask you as we conclude, is this the, the sort of faith that you profess? A faith authored by God with Christ as its only object that results in obedience and eternal life based on the testimony of God. Friends, that's the, the only real faith. It's the only faith that can save. And so may God, may he work it in our hearts, all for the glory of his name, for the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, as we pray together. Father God, uh, we do praise you uh, that you are a God who has not left us in our poor state. Uh, you have not left us to sin. You have not left us to the sufferings that we deserve. But you have sent your Son to die in our place. Uh, and you have worked faith in our hearts, a faith that looks and rests solely in him. And so, God, we ask uh, that you would help us uh, to, to ask ourselves the hard questions, to look at our faith and see what we are resting in this morning. And it is our prayer that it would be Christ and him alone. And we ask it in his name. Amen.